Our message this morning is entitled, The Christian Ethic to Servants, and will come from Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Let's read that short passage together. Paul, writing to Titus, a younger minister, says, Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. We've been considering together what Paul would have Titus' job to be in instructing the various congregations that he comes across and raises up ministers within because he was left on the island of Crete to set in order things that were wanting or lacking and ordain men to elder in every city. Most recently, last week, we considered Paul's specific instruction to various demographics in the church. And we confess to you that at times we got a little colorful in that message, but suffice it to say, God's grace has appeared to all types of people, to male and female, old and young, of every different type or demographic of person in the world. And since God's grace has appeared to all types of people, teaching them to live in a godly way, burdening them, hungering, giving them a hunger and a thirst after righteousness, then we as the ministry are to instruct very specifically every type of person that is within the church. And so today we come to Paul's counsel for one particular demographic in the church in the first century, his counsel to believing servants, believing servants. Again, this is the Christian ethic to servants that believe. In our world, we have a very relativistic view of that which is moral or ethical. In fact, in our country today, we might argue that there is very little that we hold to be moral or ethical, and the morals that we used to subscribe to as a nation, we no longer do. And it's getting to the point in this country where if you actually subscribe to biblical ethics or morals, you're censored, you're canceled, you're banned. I made a comment, a short one-sentence comment on Twitter this past week about gender and how Males are males and females are females, and while we feel for people who struggle with dysphoria about that, it is very much a mental illness if you're a male who believes himself to be a female or a female who believes herself to be a male. And as I woke up the morning after that and I logged into Twitter to read the headlines, I noticed that I was locked out. I had been censored. I had been disciplined, placed in time out by the powers that be of the Internet for simply referring to something that psychologists have for all time classified to be a mental illness, one that we don't make fun of people for having, but one that we do recognize as a disorder and also sin. And we make no apology for that. Scripture presents for us very concretely the ethics of being a follower of Christ. In other words, the ethical code the morals, the standards, what we are to be, what we're to ascribe to, what we should endeavor to be as believers. And today, our message will consider 
what God's Word has to say to those who find themselves in servitude. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Now, the benefit of expository preaching and what we do as we go through books of the Bible verse by verse is called expository preaching. We expound upon the text, we exposit it, we go verse by verse and consider everything that we find. The benefit of expository preaching is that it forces you to consider texts that you may otherwise be inclined to pass over. And I confess to you that today's passage is one such example that if I had nothing to preach and was thinking of something, praying for something that I would talk about, these two verses from Titus chapter 2 probably would not make the list of things that I would grab for if I needed a subject. And the reason is that, number one, our nation has a very dark and sinful history with the concept of servitude, what we referred to it as was slavery. And number two, because there isn't necessarily in our lives a direct application of these passages in our own personal lives. Because we live in a free country, because we live in a free country, we are not servants to others in the sense that we lose our liberties and we must serve them the way that people had to serve or sometimes, as we'll see, chose to serve in Paul's day. But God's Word is to be studied. God's Word is to be learned, including passages such as the one that we find in our study through Titus at present. While there may not be a direct application because we are not servants necessarily to other men, there are general ways that this can be applied to us as a matter of principle. Now, first of all, we, as we'll see how this applies to us, can apply it to the way that we consider our relationship with our employer. We serve them in a sense. Now, as we'll get to the actual meat of the text and read the guidance and the advice that Paul gives for Titus to instruct people who find themselves in servitude, if you apply the principles that Paul gives Titus here in Titus chapter 2 to the way that you interact with your employer, then you will be a treasured commodity in the workplace. I can promise you. Also, though we may not be servants to men, every single one of us is a servant to something. And that's a biblical subject that's a lot larger than we'll consider today. We once were the servants of sin. We once were the servants of Satan. We once were the servants of the flesh and the world and yet now, being bought with a price, we are the servants, the slaves of Christ. So many times in the Word of God, these men who wrote these epistles, they didn't introduce themselves as chiefly ministers or apostles or evangelists, men of authority. But before every other title that we may be inclined to give them in the church, notice just Titus chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, a servant of God. That means everything that it meant to be a servant, 
Paul was to God and to Christ. And so while we're not in this country ever servants of men, in the sense that they were in this day, you can apply every single one of these principles to your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while this doesn't directly apply to us today, it does apply to us in terms of general principles. As we begin to consider these thoughts together, there's an overarching word that I want to use and I want to acquaint you with today that we simply do not like. I'm going to read the word. You're going to say, I don't like that word. And it's the word submission. We don't like submission. We don't like to submit to others. In fact, in, a, in our country, it, our state's motto is we dare defend our rights. One of the flags of the colonists that fought against Great Britain was yellow, and it had a snake, and it said, don't tread on me. I said, I think last week, it may have been here, that I'm not comfortable with a flag that depicts us as a snake that doesn't want to get stepped on, when biblically Satan is the snake that gets stepped on. I'm uncomfortable with that. But those mottos and flags are expressions of a principle that is so true to us as Americans, we want to be free. And we'll talk about freedom today and what God's Word says about it. But as much as God's Word commands us to stand in the liberty wherewith we have been placed by Christ, it also exhorts us to submit to certain authorities in the world. We submit where God has given authority. We don't submit where God has not given authority. Just in brief, children, God's Word calls on you to submit to your parents. What does that mean? It means that when they tell you to do something, God's Word expects you to do it, if you're living in their house and living under their authority. Now, when you grow up and get married, what do you do? You leave father and mother to cleave unto your husband or your wife, and you are one flesh with them, and you have left your parents. You're no longer obliged to submit to what they tell you. And God's Word gives great boundaries that we need to respect in the world that parents of married children such as myself need to understand and offspring who are now away and married need to understand that when a person marries, they leave father and mother. But children in the home, you are called upon to submit to mom and dad. That's not fun and none of us liked it. That's not fun and none of you little ones like it, right? I just love submitting to mom and dad. They make me come home before midnight on a Friday night. I just love coming home before midnight on a Friday night. None of us like that. Wives, Scripture calls on you to submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Submit. That word submission applies to wives to their husbands. Church members are to submit to one another in the church. The same chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, that says wives are to submit to their husbands, says that we ought to submit one to another. And so we submit to one another in the church. If the church says, Brother Ben, we feel that what you're doing is sinful and we call on you to repent of that, my responsibility and obligation to God is to submit to my fellows in the church. Another case of that would be if the church decides to do something that's not a matter of doctrine or practice that I don't like then I am to go along with the will of the church for the peace of the church. There's a body of people that I love to visit around this time every year, usually about mid-February, and it probably won't happen this year because of COVID. But I go out and preach a series of meetings with them, and 
There's an expression that I hear ne nearly every time that I'm out there. As they're talking about, do we want to renovate the auditorium? Do we want to change from one big cup at communion time to little individual cups? I think everyone's thankful for that during COVID. <laughs> the, the joke in some places you go to that still share a common cup, which was something that lots of peoples did in church history, all of the people in the know would just about fight each other for the front row so they could get to the cup before anybody else. Now, I would love to spin it up on them ever so often and make the deacons start serving the wine in the back and work the way to the front and see all the faces, talk about getting run off as a preacher in a hurry. That would probably be one way to do it. But anytime that group out there is going through something and they're talking about changing something, something maybe insignificant, they'll say, whatever the church decides, I have my opinion, but I'll submit to the will of the church. Might I exhort all of us to be of that mind if the church decides to do something, even if it's not something that might be my opinion, a matter of decor or a function or when I say a function, I mean of the facility, then whatever the church decides, we submit to the will of the church. To do otherwise is to be a rebel and a renegade, and it borderlines, especially when opinions are strong and vocal, on heresy. You see, the word heresy doesn't mean false teaching. The word heresy means division or schism. And so if I'm divisive, then I am, by definition, a heretic. I'm being heretical at least, and I ought to be censored and warned and, if the need be, disciplined. But we're to submit to the church. And here's one that we don't like. Citizens are to submit to the powers that be. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1 we'll consider as we come there in short time. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. I've heard it said that I don't want to submit if the government's not worth submitting to. When Paul wrote those words, Nero, a wicked, godless wretch, was Caesar. You think about the people that Paul stood before and was tried by. They were ungodly men. And what does Paul do? He preaches the gospel to them. Agrippa sarcastically tells him, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And he says, I would, not, I would that you were not almost, but altogether such as I, except for these bonds, towards the end of the book of Acts. We are to be model citizens, and we are to submit to the powers that be, even if we don't like them or agree with them. More on that in a couple of weeks. Scripture says a lot about submission. And we as human beings don't like submission. In fact, that was our first sin. What was Adam's transgression? A display of open in the world to the face of God, rebellion. The very first sin of Adam, the very first sin of mankind is a man saying, I don't want to do what God told me to do. He didn't like to submit. He didn't want to submit. He violated the law of God. And because of that, our entire race is plunged into sin, and the entire universe is cursed thereby. And one day God will destroy it by fire. In all of that, we submit, as we'll see today, even servants to masters, because ultimately we are not submitting to those organizations or institutions or people. We submit because we are submitting to God. And we find this very strongly in the book of Ephesians. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands 
As unto the Lord, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Over and over, the submission, the moral, the standard behind that is your submission to God and Christ. And so while we look at a case today that maybe doesn't affect us directly, we're still learning lessons that apply to us today that are built upon principles that apply to us today, namely that when it is a God-acknowledged or instituted form of power, the family, the church, the government, we submit, even when things are not ideal. What's the one time when we do not submit, when someone tells us to violate the law of God? We ought to obey God rather than men. So we pay our taxes, we obey the speed limit most of the time. We don't do things that are illegal, not simply because we're afraid of getting in trouble, but because it's simply the right thing to do in the sight of God. We're submitting to Him, and He tells us to submit to these powers, and we submit to the powers because we're submitting to Him. Now, that might not be as enjoyable for us to hear this morning as salvation by grace, but at this moment in human history... It is as important for us to be reminded of, as Americans, than just about any other truth in this book. And we say, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now we want to uh, next look, transition into what servitude was in Paul's day, you might say, as an industry. Now, sharing facts of the matter doesn't mean that we condone it. And I want to be very clear about that up front. The Bible speaking about something doesn't mean that the Bible condones it. Scripture speaks about all kinds of things that condone. There are words and sentences, conversations that are recorded in the Bible that God's Word would condemn. As far as the principles of God's Word, there are lies that men have told that are truthfully reported in Scripture just because the Bible speaks about something doesn't mean that the Bible condones it. As we think about servitude in the first century, if you want to study that, it's fairly interesting. It was different, it was so very different than the industry of slavery in the United States in our early days. What took place in the early United States was actually condemned in Scripture under the heading of men-stealing. Human trafficking is a sin. Where do you get that? 1 Timothy chapter 1. We know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Men-stealing is a sin. Men-stealing is ungodly. Men-stealing is compared to murdering your parents and lying and stealing and fornicating. Men-stealing is wrong. What happened in the early United States was men-stealing. And I believe that our nation suffered 
greater as a result of that sin, which was a societal sin. We have sometimes societal sins. We have them in our day-to-day. Abortion is probably the largest of those. What happened as a result of that societal sin was the death of so many Americans in war and then a damaged economy that affected our country for decades, if not a hundred years. And so what we read off today isn't like that. But still, despite that, God's word, I believe, as we'll see, reading between the lines maybe, presents ethics in such a way that Christianity naturally, without protest, without armed rebellion or conflict, Christianity naturally remedies, rids the world of that institution. And I believe I can prove that to you. As far as the causes of servitude in the first century being different than the early U.S., and I think we've hammered on that point enough, men stealing is a sin, there were four ways generally that a person might become a servant. First of all, debt. Solomon talks about this all the way back in the Proverbs. The borrower is servant unto the lender. What does he mean by that? If you borrow money and you can't pay it back, you had to work for the person you borrowed the money from until that debt was paid. Now think about debt in your own life with the, prog- the prospect of having to pay it back through indentured servitude, indebtedness. How much less likely would you be to go out and buy a car on credit if you knew that if you couldn't pay it back, they wouldn't just take the car from you. They would make you work as a servant in the home of the wealthy person you borrowed the money from. I think I would be far less likely to sign my name in debt. Think about credit card debt and how that blew up out of control in previous decades in the United States. When I was probably late high school, early college, it was one of the things that you heard about a lot on the news, and I knew several adults that would engage in debt consolidation, and you'd put all of your debt in one loan and eliminate all the different high-interest accounts to put it all in one low-interest account and finally pay it off. And I know people who had to combine three or so credit cards all maxed out into one And once that was taken care of, they never wanted to borrow a dime again because they were literally being strangled each month by the debts that they owed. But in this day, if you couldn't pay back the debt that you owed, you know what they would do with you? They would force you to become the servant of the person from which you borrowed the money. Jesus gave parables about that about people who were forgiven of little, or for great rather, and then did not forgive people who owed them just a little bit and delivered them to the tormentors and treated them very terribly. And those parables are teaching us a lesson that Jesus has forgiven us a great debt, so we ought to forgive one another little debts. This concept works its way into many of the teachings of Christ, and that's one reason we need to be familiar with it. People would become servants because of debt. Number two... People would become servants voluntarily. You might think, why in the world would someone want to voluntarily become a servant of another person? 
Well, let's reason through that for just a moment. Imagine you are starving to death. Your children are starving to death. You're homeless. You don't have a place to lay down at night and go to sleep. You're sleeping in the streets. You're hungry. You can see your ribs. Your children's have that uh, your children have has distended stomachs, and you can see their ribs and their bones of their arms and legs are easily visible. And you think we're starving to death. It would be better to be a servant in a kind, wealthy man's home than it would be to see my children starve to death. And so many people volunteered for servitude because to serve a kind person in a wealthy home was better for them than to starve to death. And that legitimately happened. We have safety nets in our country today that I'm very thankful for. Why do you think we have safety nets in our country today? Why do you think we have those institutions in our country that help people that are down on their luck, that lose their job and can't pay their bills and can't buy their children food? Because we have a country that is influenced by Christianity which teaches that pure religion and undefiled is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and keep themselves unspotted from the world. We live in a country that is influenced by the teachings of Christ, which teaches us to care for people, that it's more blessed to give than to receive, where we find examples of the early church selling lands and houses to put the money in the church treasury to take care of those who didn't have food. There's a better way. In the world today, because of the teachings of Christ, our country fundamentally reflects that. It's kind of ironic that certain societal, governmental, economic structures, communism, socialism, always promises that, but there's no Christ in communism. And so what you find, rather than universal care for people, you find universal poverty and oppression Scripture presents a better way. Third, people, many of them, were servants because they were born into it. Now, that doesn't mean it's right, it doesn't mean it's good, but it does give us a great metaphor for sin. We're sinners not because we sold ourselves into it. That's what Adam, our father, did. We're sinners, we're servants of sin because we were born into it. Studying servitude in the Scripture helps us understand the gospel. We had to be bought from it, but the price was so great that we could not pay it, and so Jesus came and He paid the debt for us because we were born under sin. That expression, born under sin, probably stands out a little bit in your mind now after considering servitude from Scripture. Lastly, we were or people, rather, were or could be servants because of conquest. And you see this often in the Old Testament. Read the book of Daniel. Daniel and the children of Israel fall to Babylon. They're carried into the palace of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and they are forced to serve him. They became servants because of military conquest. The world is a cruel place, and that's often what happened. Another little bit of a word up front, as we, consider about, uh, as we consider the industry of servitude, the existence of servitude in the first century, Scripture often shows how to work within the fallen systems of man. 
So God will give us a word in Scripture about how to survive or endure or go along in a system, and that doesn't mean that he necessarily agrees with it, and we need to understand that. There's a lot in the New Testament about how a servant or a master should treat each other, but that doesn't mean that God endorses it. What's a good example of a parallel? One case in Scripture is polygamy. Scripture would exhort a husband with more than one wife on how to behave with his wives. But at no point does God approve of having more than one wife. How do you know that? Because Jesus said from the beginning, they twain were one flesh, husband and wife. Scripture presents God's rules of marriage as being one man and one woman. And yet those rules, God gives guidance concerning things such as polygamy. He suffered it to be. My Bible reading this week took me through the lives of Jacob and Esau and Jacob marrying Leah and Jacob marrying Rachel and how Rachel couldn't have children and how Jacob bore children with the handmaidens. He ended up, in essence, having four wives that bore him children and... I used to ask Dad, Dad, what does that mean? Does that mean that we should be able to have four wives? There are people in the world that tell you that. Resisting all the temptation to make jokes about the sanity of a man that would want four wives. I guess I just did. But he would tell me, Son, God suffered some of those things to be because he had a purpose in the world. And God does at times suffer things to be. He gives laws concerning and records things such as a spousal. Does that mean that all fathers are supposed to pick their children's spouses? Well, the fathers would probably like that, but I don't think the children would like that a whole lot. Servitude, life under various types of government, such as the Roman Empire in this day, the nation of Israel when they had kings, life under Babylon, a wicked pagan king, a kingdom in the book of Jeremiah. God's word shows us how to work with the fallen systems of men even when it doesn't necessarily approve of the fallen system because the word of God is always relevant. Also, as we think about servitude, God's Word does speak of servitude in a way that promotes liberty instead of servitude. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20, "...let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it." Listen to this, but if thou mayest be free, use it rather. Are you called being a servant? Don't worry about it. But if you're called being free, use it rather. In other words, to be free is, be is better than being a servant. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. In other words, there's a greater principle in the world than your temporal circumstance. If you're a servant who's called of Christ, you're really free. And if you think you're a free man who's called of Christ, you're really a servant. 
In other words, in Christ, we are all free. In Christ, we are all servants. Let that principle sink in a minute. Let it sink in. Right now in our country, and I got on this soapbox last week. I won't get on it today, but we have lost our minds about politics in this country. Paul applies the gospel and the kingdom in such a way that if you're a servant, who cares you're free in Christ? If you're a free man, who cares you're a servant in Christ? What we have in the kingdom is to be more important, more guiding, more steering, more crucial to our day-to-day lives than whatever the temporal circumstances that we find ourselves in, whether servitude, governmental systems, I'm just going to say it, politics in our country is probably the greatest form of idolatry that Christians have fallen to. It is idolatry anytime I put anything over the service of Christ. And in this country, I guarantee you we all thought about politics more over the last three months than we thought about Christ. And my brethren, these things ought not be. We ought to serve Christ. Christ is better. His kingdom is better. His kingdom exists in all the world. What are we worried about this country for when we belong to the kingdom of heaven? Whose king is not up for re-election. He will not be set down. He will not be impeached. He doesn't need to worry about midterms. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And then you know what he's going to do? He's going to deliver up the kingdom. Every single child of God from the beginning of time to the destruction of the world will be brought into his gates with singing. We worry too much about things in this world where the Lord that sits in the heavens shall laugh. He shall have the kings of this earth in derision, according to Psalm 2. And we're worried? I'm on his side. Or better yet, he's on my side. And if the Lord be for us, who can be against us? Child of God, don't let those things bother you. I said I wouldn't get on the soapbox. Scripture says if you're a servant, you're the Lord's freeman. If you're called, you're Christ's servant. You're bought with a price. Be not the servants of men. Now, fathom that. You're bought with a price. Be not the servants of men. Let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. What does God's word commend unto us in that passage? Liberty. In other words, if I take that verse, I ought never be a person who enslaves another, and I ought never to sell myself into slavery. The gospel naturally rids the world of slavery. Another example of that is the book of Philemon, the book right after the book of Titus, before the book of Hebrews. It's a very short epistle. I wonder, personally, if it's short because Paul is perhaps writing it himself. As you know, Paul is believed to have had very, very poor eyesight. It's alluded to in one epistle, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me, referring to a church that would give him so much, that loved him so much. It's only 25 verses, and Paul says in verse 19, I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I've written it with my own hand, probably why it's so short. He couldn't see. Paul is writing to Philemon, a brother in Christ and arguably a minister of the gospel, because one of his 
indebted servants had escaped, a man named Onesimus. The word Onesimus means profitable. Paul makes a pun out of that in verse 11, which in times past was not to thee profitable, but now profitable to thee and me. Onesimus escapes Philemon and he becomes converted. He's under the ministry of Paul. Paul sends this servant of God back, who's believed, I believe also to have ended up becoming a minister. He sends Onesimus back to Philemon to make things right. But notice what Paul says to Philemon. Perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever. How so as a, as a forever servant? There were people who would be forever servants in the Old Testament. If you loved the person that you were a servant to so much, you could take an auger and bore a hole through your ear on the doorpost of that man's house. And that was a ceremony to commemorate the fact that you, would, you were agreeing, you were volunteering to be that person's servant forever. That tells you that it was not all like it was in the United States with abuse and just the treachery, the treacherous things that happened. You sing that song, Amazing Grace. We love that song, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. Do you know that song was written by a man who participated in the slave trade? He knew what it was about, and when God convicted him of that, he repented of that, and we have that song, Amazing Grace, as a testimony to it. He knew what was happening on those ships. It was deplorable, it was despicable, it was treacherous. But there were cases when it was not that way. If you wanted to be a person's servant forever, you bore a hole through your ear on their doorpost. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Maybe you receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now listen, if there thou for, if there count me, if thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. Do you think he would receive Paul as a servant in that way? No. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, if he owes you anything, put it on my account. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. Paul says, if he owes you something, I'll pay it. What's he asking him to do? Forgive him and release him, even though he had the authority to cast him to the tormentors for escaping. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. The gospel naturally rids the world of slavery or servitude. And I hope that's very clear from the passages. Just summarize with Galatians, stand fast in the liberty. Now he's talking about liberty from the law. He's not talking about liberty in the United States. That would be to twist and misapply that passage. But nonetheless, Christ brings us liberty. Again, we can apply it to ourselves today, these principles that we'll spend the last 15 minutes talking about. As number one, the way that we deal with our employers, and number two, our service to Christ, because we are the servants of Jesus. Verse 9, exhort servants, back to Titus 2, exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. Number one, Servants are exhorted of Paul to be obedient to their masters. Now you can imagine if you had borrowed 
$100,000 to buy a home from a wealthy person. You couldn't pay it back because the economy crashed and you lost your job. There was a dearth in the land and you were starving to death. And so you became that person's servant. How bitter you would be that you went from being a free man to a servant because you borrowed money that you could not pay back. It would be easy to be bitter. It would be easy to be resentful. And yet Paul says, exhort them to be obedient to their own masters. That's biblical. In the Ephesian letter we read, as unto the Lord. And then he would say in the Ephesian letters, Masters, remember, you have a master in heaven, so treat them the way that you would have your master treat you. And Jesus gave again the parable about the one that was forgiven much, being harsh to the one who would not forgive little, to drive that point home to us. Be obedient to them, and from other epistles, remember you that may be the debt holder, the head of that house, remember that you have a master in heaven. You would not want him to be harsh to you. Don't be harsh to people that are under your authority. And the same can apply to employers and employees. But notice this word here, to please them well in all things. To seek to serve them in a way that is pleasing to them. Now, let's apply that in a larger scope than simply dealing with servants and masters. You should want to please your employer. They're paying you to do something. They're paying you to do something. You should want to please them because you should be thankful to have a job. In this country today, we have this class warfare between people who hire you and the people who are hired. Let me just say, thank God... Thank the Lord that we have employers in this country. Thank God for jobs in this country. I should want to conduct myself as an employee in a way that's pleasing to my employer so that his job goes well, his business does well, and so I can feed my family. I don't resent, I, I don't resent jobs. You know, there were days that it wasn't fun to stand on the side of I-20 when it was 18 degrees land surveying with a reflector standing on the white line as traffic's passing me, the fast lane, going 85 miles an hour in Leeds, Alabama, every 50 feet, taking a shot, both sides. That wasn't exactly fun. Now, how do you want to die today? Would you like it to be the 18-wheeler, the Volkswagen? One time we were doing a survey in the middle of the road, setting the grade for the subgrade, the roadbed processing, and a, a lady hit one of the orange reflector signs and it whipped her off the road. And my boss grabbed a guy that's now married to a primitive Baptist deacon's daughter in Virginia, slings him out of the way, and the lady runs over all of his equipment. There were times that wasn't very fun, but I was always thankful to have an employer, and I always wanted to do what was right as a matter of personal pride and integrity, if you want to put it in the American vernacular, I wanted his business to do well. I wanted to please him. I wanted to do a good job. My dad taught me when I was a little boy, and it was something I applied flipping hamburgers at Wendy's, all through working as a land surveyor, wherever I've been, and I try to apply it to the ministry today. If I have a task or a job 
I've agreed to do it. I've been hired to do it. I'm going to do whatever I can to do my best to work for that person. He said, son, if you're digging ditches, you'd be the best ditch digger that the world has ever known. If you're picking up refuge from the road, be the best at it you can be. If you're flipping hamburgers, do it to the best of your ability. If you're working retail, do it to the best of your ability. If you're a lawyer, a doctor, if you're a, how about this one, an elected official, a civil servant, whatever you do, do it to the best of your ability. You notice I put a variety of jobs in there because every type of work is good work. If it's a real honest job, I don't look down on anybody for the work that they do. Praise God. You know what? We saw who really was essential a few months ago. Walking around through Walmart trying to find toilet paper. There are people in there that were working when most everybody else was sent home because society can live without them. And that really taught us all some lessons. Some people that we look down on really are needed a whole lot more in society than <laughs> a lot of other things that you find people doing in the world. Try to please them. Not answering again. Not answering again. I'm so tempted to apply those, these last two to uh, being parents and children, not answering again. Backtalking is never a good thing. Explaining a situation is fine. We need information. He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it's folly unto him and shame. We need information. However, we do not want to be backtalkers, yakking back, yapping at people. Got a lot of words for that because we have five kids. I have to invent new ones for every time we had one. Not answering again, not arguing with them. Now, this is again to servants and masters, but it applies to us in our workplaces, and it also applies to us in Christ. Do we read a passage of Scripture and we think, I don't like that, I don't want to do that? What are we doing? We're answering again. We're back talking Christ. Now, we like to think that we back talk Christ now. Just imagine yourself in His presence, and suddenly that becomes far less tempting to do, understanding that you are in His presence. Because if He were right here in physical form, I doubt we would want to backtalk Him the way we do when we argue with what's written in His Word. This next verse 10, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity. What does it mean to purloin? How many of you today have used that word in your... In your everyday speech, purloining. But Jesse raised his hand. Y'all pray for him. There's something wrong with that guy. Purloining. We don't use the word purloining every day. What does it mean? To purloin is to embezzle. And so purloining is embezzlement. What is embezzlement? It's defined as theft or misappropri uh, misappropriation of funds placed in one's trust or belonging to one's employer. I might also, once again, interject public servants and elected officials in that. Purloining, embezzlement, misappropriation of funds placed in one's trust belonging to one's employer. Recently, we talked about the fact that ministers of the gospel uh, are stewards which is someone who's brought in to look after the household of a man and the affairs of a man and to take care of that man's belongings and money and things. To purloin is to embezzle. So what would that look like? 
Let's say this man has a treasury, and let's say one of the servants there picks out a coin every so often and hides it in a place so eventually he can take it and spend it on something that he wants, or maybe even freedom if he sold himself into it and would like to deliver himself from it. It's embezzlement. Years ago when I was working as a land surveyor for the parent company before we branched out as our own company, there was a man that wrote our checks each and every week and I always got a funny vibe about him. Come to find out, he was writing himself extra little checks, $50 here, $150 there, $300 there, to the tune of, over 20 years, about $200,000 he had embezzled. And guess where that individual ended up? Ended up in jail. He was embezzling money from his employer. The same Greek word, interestingly enough, translates keep back or kept back in the book of Acts chapter 5 in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. You might remember Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5.1, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back, there's our word, kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy, which means in on the deal, his wife being privy to it, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what's so wrong with that? They sold something, they gave part of it to the church. Nothing is wrong with that scenario just as I described it. The problem is they said, we sold it and we're giving it all to the church. But they didn't give it all to the church. They did that to be seen as giving when they really kept back part of it. And so Peter said, why Ananias hath Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back purloin, embezzle, part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Now you might think, what happened to this fellow? Upon hearing these words, he fell down and gave up the ghost. Peter scares him to death. I mean, he speaks to him and he drops dead, literally drops dead that moment. People carried him out and buried him. Three hours later, didn't take him long to bury him, did it? Remember, they have tombs. He just roll away a stone and put you in. Three hours later, his wife, not knowing what had taken place, comes in. Peter said, tell me whether you sold the land for this much. She said, yeah, so much. So let's say they sell it for 10000 Ananias and Sapphira say, we sold it for 5000 Here's the 5000 Aren't you so generous when they've really got 5000 in their pocket as well? She goes along with it. She tells the same lie. Peter said, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. And straightway she fell down dead at his feet. They had embezzled from the Holy Spirit. And God gave a very pointed example that he was not pleased. By the way, I think if we took the Lord and the church and the Holy Spirit half as seriously as we ought to, this world would be a different place. I mean, if people were dying for lying to the church in that day, could you imagine how we would enter into this place with reverence and godly fear? The opposite of purloining, then, is fidelity. And we notice that. Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Fidelity here translates from the same Greek word, pistis, which translates faith every time it enters into the English language in our King James Bibles. 
Every time faith occurs, it's the same word that translates here, fidelity. And in this passage, it means faithful, fidelity. All good faithfulness. You have good fidelity with the belongings of the house that you serve. Now, how does that apply to our employers? We want to handle their property with care, honoring them and revering them. How does it apply to our stewardship of the Lord and His gospel? We want to handle the Word of God and our responsibility as a church, the finances of the church, the facility of the church, the message, the ministry of the church. We want to handle that as the servants of Christ with all good fidelity. We want to be faithful servants. I had a conversation with a brother this past week, and we were talking about the tendency to do things as preachers to try to get more people in the building When in reality, God hasn't called us to be successful. He's called us to be faithful. And so regardless of what it gives back to us, once we got kicked back, you know, we've had this radio ministry several years. Brother Hewell and I can both attest to this example. And someone said, we're tired of doing this. We've not got anybody visiting our church at all through this radio ministry. We just need to quit it. And if Brother Ben wants to keep doing it, he can do it on his own. Well... God hasn't called us to be successful in any of these ministries. He's called us to be faithful, and part of that faithfulness is to preach the Word anywhere we have the opportunity. Now, we have had people come in through the radio broadcast, and one family as far away as California. I I made the joke, it took it that far to get across the continent to find anybody that'd be interested. It did. It did bless us with people. But the reason that we did it was to be faithful in preaching the Word. Again, we're not purloining. We're just simply being faithful with what God has given us. Now, as we draw all of this to a conclusion today and we try to sew this concept up nicely from Scripture, what's the motivation in all of this? In a servant obeying his master and you being a good employee, in us all, we all being good servants to Christ, what does this do? that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. We adorn the doctrine. Now, one way of looking at that could be that you take the doctrine and you put it on and you wear it. In other words, you're girt about with the truth of God's Word and you wear the doctrine because the word adorn means to put on. And it was used, this Greek word, Primarily, to have reference to women wearing clothing. But I believe what Paul is saying here is that our lifestyle adorns the gospel that we preach. I can make the gospel dressed in a beautiful garment in the eyes of others by the way that I live. I can make the gospel appealing by my lifestyle. Now, why would I believe that? Because of the context. First of all, when he talked about wives submitting to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. In other words, if we don't do what God has called us, people speak evil of the word of God. Number two, speak thou the things, verse one of this chapter, speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, which make Sound doctrine, beautiful. Interestingly enough, 
This word comes from the Greek word cosmeo, which is a derivative of the word cosmos, which means world. But the Greeks would use this word world also to have reference to things which are orderly. Cosmos can mean a created order. And it's the root for our English word. All of you ladies are familiar with it. Cosmetics. What do you do with cosmetics? What did you do this morning? Sometimes I tell you this story. It didn't happen to me. It happened to Brother Tim McCool. Somebody asked him, Primitive Baptist, does that mean your ladies can't wear makeup? And he said, please, our ladies need to wear makeup. (laughs) He said it, not me. Looking at some of those videos that Ethan shoots, I'm thinking I need to wear makeup. This word, cosmeo, translates or comes into the English language as the root for cosmetics. Think about it. It can mean an ornament or an order. A lady is adorned in cosmetics. We adorn, we adorn what we teach with beauty when we live the principles that we claim to believe. We make the word of God beautiful by the way that we live. We'll close with a quote of John Gill from his commentary about this passage. A suitable life and conversation, conversation means lifestyle, is what becomes the gospel of Christ, throws a beauty upon it, and is ornamental to it. Let's pray. Father, give us the strength to live the gospel that it may look beautiful to those who are in the world around us. We've considered some difficult subjects today, and we pray, God, that as we've studied them, that despite the fact that we live in a world two millennia separated from this context and these struggles and these exhortations, that there were things in it that benefit us in our own lives. We pray, Lord, that we would submit to all forms of authority that you acknowledge in the world, in the home, in the church, and to the powers that be. Lord, we pray that we remember that when we submit in those cases, it's not unto them ultimately, but to you. And Lord, that gives us strength when we submit in times when we would rather not. Help us, Lord, to adorn the gospel. Help us to speak that which becomes sound doctrine. Forgive us of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name, and amen.